Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't believe that we are entering the fourth quarter of 2023. This year is just going by. And I want to take us back, though, into the third quarter of 2023 by sharing with you highlights from the amazing guests that we've had on How Leaders Lead. So I've got my podcast partner, the cool Kula Callahan, with me. Kula, how are you today? I know we're going to have a lot of fun sharing these insights. I'm great, David. Better now that I've been referred to officially as your podcast partner. So that feels really good. (laughs) But I, too, am thrilled about our conversation today because, as you know, Kula loves a highlight reel. And for those of you listening, if this is your first best of episode, here's how it's going to work. You know it, how leaders lead. We love sharing leadership insights. And we also know that you're really busy and don't always have the time to listen to an entire episode. So we've taken some of the very best moments from our last 12 interviews with some of the top leaders in the world, and we've put them into one single episode so you can get a ton of quick hit insights in a short amount of time. The idea is if you like what you hear from a particular leader, we'll also say the episode number after each clip so you can scroll back into the feed and dive deeper into that particular interview with that guest. And we've got some really good guests that we're gonna hit you with highlights of. Let's kick it off with the most downloaded episode of the quarter, and it was with Alan Mulally, the former CEO of the Ford Motor Company. Now, Alan had a pretty big challenge stepping in as CEO of Ford because when he walked in the door, they had just posted a loss of $17 billion. That's right, $17 billion. I, I can't even imagine losing that much money. Well, he started to turn the ship around by having his team deal with reality, which is a great starting point for anyone stepping into a new leadership opportunity. Here's Alan Mulally from episode 146. This is a recommendation I make to to everybody whenever they're in a situation or even if they're not in a situation, but they're assessing where they are in their plan is just deal with reality. Really understand the reality all the aspects of it, and just look at the world, look what's happening in the world, look at all the trends, look at the technology. And we actually build that into our business plan review every week, where every member of the leadership team, David, whether it's engineering, manufacturing, procurement, legal, they start out their part of describing their plan and where they are with what's going on in the world. So within two-hour meeting, you've gone through the entire business You know everything that's going on, and you're looking for the opportunities to grow the business, but you're also looking for the issues that you need to deal with that are going to be risks to the business. And so that's what we did, and I included everybody. And so, I mean, we looked at all the data. That that was the first time that all the the team knew they are going to lose $17 billion. We weren't sharing all of the data. And so I took transparency to a whole nother level. Uh, and we shared 
everything. And of course, everybody in the company was willing to update us and tell us what's going on because they're dealing with all of this. All these problems they have when you're losing $17 billion, I mean, it's not a very fun place to work. So <laughs> yeah. we, we, ta- we tapped into everybody and everybody shared it. And just a funny story about that, every week, the leader would present their plan and all the elements of their plan and the status. And they put green, yellow, and red next to it. And green meant that they were on plan. Yellow meant they had a new issue, but they had a solution. And red was they had a new issue, but they didn't have a solution yet. And a red is not a problem. That's where I clap because, thank goodness, we know now because now we all can work together with you because you're not the problem. You're the answer, and you brought up the issue so we know what it is. So we can work together to turn the reds to yellows to greens. So you have this business planning review. You have this color coding system. And as I understand it, when you had your first meeting with all these leaders, you were all green. Everything was green. And you've just lost $17 billion. You know, what was your reaction when you saw all the greens? In that meeting, I had a chance to clap. Now, let me tell you why. So we started our first meeting, and to your point, there were 300 charts, and all 300 were green. And then I said at the end of the meeting, so you guys, you know now, they didn't know before, we're going to lose $17 billion. And all of our charts on Stata are green. I said, now, you might think about this. Is there anything, anything in your area of responsibility that might not be going well? And so the eye contact, David, goes down to the floor. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, no. So so next week, they're all green again. And so I'm checking around with everybody. And, so what's, and they said, they're scared to death, Alan, because in our culture here, before you got here, you never brought an issue ever to the leader, let alone your, your supervisor, the leader, unless you had a solution. So now you're managing a secret. You have no idea what's going on, and you can't help change the green, the reds, the yellows, the green. So I said, I said, well, we're going we're gonna to stick with this. I know it works. And so I stuck with it and it went on for, gosh, I bet uh, six, eight weeks. And I, every week I had the same conversation, very nice way, very respectful, you know, $17 billion. I think if we know what's going on, we can, we can start to change it. So then uh, Mark Fields, he's leading North America. And we have a CEO for each of the regions around the world. And he has a, a launch problem in Oakville, Canada, uh, with a new uh, edge. And so they uh, color-coded red. They stopped production. Huge issue, as you know, in any, any business making things, to stop production. Because we said we weren't going to deliver things unless it's the highest quality. So he stops production. So he's getting ready for the business plan review, David, the next day with his business plan review for North America. And up comes his chart on the launches. And we have like 20 or 30 launches going on around the world. So he, every launch chart has uh, the technical readiness, the schedule compliance, and the financial impact. And it's green, green, green for this launch. So he says to the team, you guys, I, I think this is one of those red things Alan's talking about. And they all said, well, it might be, uh, but you know, what do you want to do about it? And he said, well, I think we should turn it red. I think he... He's saying that if we don't know what the issues are, we can't apply all of our talent together to work them. And one of the vice presidents, David, actually said to him, 
Good luck, Mark. Nice knowing you. Um, <laughs> so the next day, next day, we started the business plan review. Green, 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 green. And then up comes this red chart. And I mean, the eye contact goes down to the floor. Um, uh, they told, And they, they're looking at me. They're looking at Mark. They told me later that they all were looking at the two doors behind me and Mark and waiting for the doors open, two large human beings to come in and remove Mark from the meeting because he had a red item. And so up comes the red, and I started, started clapping. to clap. And everybody's going, oh, no, there's a sign. The doors are going to open now. And the doors didn't open. And I said to the team, any initial thoughts right away that you can offer to Mark that can help him out? And Mark, this is great. This is great visibility, and we'll be on our way now. And a couple of weeks later, it turned to yellow, then turned to green. And that next week, David, all 300 charts looked like a rainbow. Still a lot of greens, because in every company, there's a lot of going on that's right. A lot of yellows, a number of reds. And I knew right then, once again, no matter what happened, the tsunamis around the world, the environment, the uh, economies uh, sinking around the world, the I mean, all the things that we went through, no matter what happened, that we were now going to be able to not only save our Ford, but we we're going to be able to work together to turn the reds, the yellows, the greens, and create an exciting, viable, profitable, growing Ford that was creating value for all the stakeholders in the greater good. Well, not every leader starts out at the top. And in this next clip, our guest, Brandon Bean, shares how he's built his know-how throughout his entire career. Brandon started as an intern with the Carolina Panthers, eventually climbing to assistant general manager. And then he got a shot as general manager when he was hired by the Buffalo Bills. Talk about a guy with a lot of know-how in his industry. Let's listen to a snippet from David's conversation with Brandon from episode 151. You do have to, you know, kind of be where your feet are, but you can also be watching and learning and talking to others. And, you know, in our field, when my job was done, I would go out and and help fold towels for our equipment manager and just learn how he did his business. And he actually had me start traveling with the team to help him and I would help at practice. So, it wasn't that my long-term goal was to be an equipment manager, but as I rose and became a director of football operations, I was put in charge of the equipment department. And it helped me understand the, the challenges and the struggles that someone would go with that position. So as I kind of moved up, I just kept trying to learn every area, talking to people. You know, you still have to tend to the main job that you're being hired for, but using your extra time, not while you're on the clock, so to speak, weekends, nights, uh, vacation time, learning from others in your building, also making contacts with counterparts around the league to, you know, to ask them, maybe your team doesn't do things the same way another one. So maybe you like it the way they do it a little bit more, or maybe adjust it to, you know, to back to how you were doing it. You just, you're always looking for ideas again, while you're focused on the job you're doing at hand. You know, you really run a very complex business. You, you got to understand the salary caps, the, the contracts. The, there's so much to know as a GM. How did you level up? I mean, you were like a journalism major, uh, communications major, and, and I know you worked your way up at the Panthers, but how did you level up your business acumen to feel confident in that, that part of the role, the salary cap, the contracts? 
Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I had a guy in, in Marty Herney uh, who's in Washington now is executive VP running their football ops and basically, you know, their quasi GM, but um, who really allowed me to learn. He was he was an open leader. I would say he would uh, he would have open conversations. Maybe it was offline. Maybe it was in the office. Whatever it was, but um, and then just taking the time asking questions. What do I need to learn? You know, I worked alongside a guy, Rob Rogers, who's also in Washington now, is really good at the salary cap and just asking Rob questions, how he writes contracts, um, studying other teams, how they how they do contracts. And and then just learning that, you know, the collective bargaining agreement, you know, our CBA is thick. It's it's not something you're going to sit down over a couple of weekends and knock out. It's a, um, reading that in, in, in various portions based on the calendar of the year, you know, if we're if we're talking about free agency, understanding the free agency rules, the draft. And so learning these things on the side while still making sure at the time when I was the director of football operations that I'm I'm running the team and leading it the way I'm supposed to lead it. And then adding these other things, you know, it's kind of like going to night school. It's it's not taken away from my job during the day. But when I have some free time on planes uh, traveling or in the summer, then kind of adding these, you know, these nuances to, you know, to the job. You know, Kevin Warsh is one of the absolute smartest guys I know. I don't know what his IQ is, but I'm not sure I can really count that high. And he'll be the first to tell you that one of the reasons why he's such a successful leader is that he's modeled his leadership from the leaders that he's been around. Leaders like George Schultz, leaders like Condoleezza Rice, I mean, he's been around leaders like Stanley Druckenmiller, the greatest investor of all time, but he learns from the people that can teach him the most, people who have been there and done that. And as the former member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, he took that learning and applied it and it helped him throughout his career. This is a great way for all of us to inform our own leadership style, learning by watching those around us. This is from episode 144. You know, during my career, there's nothing but borrowed valor from bosses that I had up and down the ranks. You know, I, I, I've been most lucky, mostly serendipity to be exposed to great leaders. And, you know, my, my experience is you see leaders around you when they have qualities that, that are qualities you admire, you steal from them, you borrow. You know, this is all an apprenticeship business that, that we're leading, whether it be in banking or in government or anything else. And see, when you see qualities, you try to imitate them, make them your own, try to follow good behaviors. And when you see qualities you don't like because they don't treat you well when you're their associate or you see how they treat others, you know, there might be a little bit of that in you, too, where you're rushing around and not treating people like you should. You, you see it and you don't like it. So I would say from my from my early career in investment banking and mergers, where I had some incredibly talented bosses, and I had some bosses that were more difficult. You know, I started to pick up skills that I thought were successful and that I wanted to incorporate and reject others. The key to being a better leader is to go find better leaders and, and learn from them. We only come to know who we are. We only come to reveal ourselves by interacting with other people. And because I'm really an introvert, 
that's, you know, from the time I was in, in elementary school, I always sort of had to force myself out there a little bit. And through those interactions, I think you pick up skills, soft skills and hard skills, knowledge and intangibles. You know, I guess there are people that are probably born great leaders, but for most of us, we end up being around really good leaders and really bad leaders. And it's incumbent upon us to try to pick up those good skills and to avoid the bad skills. I've never been one who thinks that you can go to the Barnes and Noble section of the bookstore on leadership and read a few books and have it figured out. That's just not my, my experience, either from my own experience or from the people that I've been around. They have, they have learned from the best and frankly learned from the worst. Our next clip is from Diana Murphy, the former president of the United States Golf Association and managing partner of Rock Solid Holdings. Whether it was at Augusta National or the RNA or the PGA of America, so much of Diana's success was in leveraging the power of collaboration. A lot of people talk about it, but it's truly something that is built into Diana's DNA. I really think she learned how important this was early in her career when she was leading a massive sales team at a publishing company. So you're about to hear how Diana has leveraged collaboration throughout her career to drive results and build team alignment. This is from episode 153. Take a listen. You led a huge sales organization very early in your career, you know, 28, 29 years old. Everybody has to motivate a sales force as you move up into most organizations. What did you learn about how to really pull that lever with your sales team to get them fired up and ready to go out there and, uh, you know, drive the sales? You know, money is obviously a, a key motivator and making sure that, that we had individual sales goals for every individual was part of it. But the secret sauce, I think, that really worked, at least for me, was having a group goal. And so that every quarter, if we as an entity met our goals, they got to choose whether they all wanted additional compensation financially or if that additional comp could go into a literally a party. And so for, I don't know how many, 15 quarters or so, they always, we always made our goals and we always put the money towards a crab feast on a ship in the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. And it was hard shell crabs, um, ice cream, lots of potato chips, and always a great band that would start with the song celebration. So, you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. So now I've got the secret. Start with yeah, the song celebration, get hard shell crabs. I love it. it there you, know? you go. And I'm my mouth is watering as I'm talking about it. I miss those things. The other thing that I was interested in learning, and I think you're really a, we're ahead of your time on this one, because this is a big buzzword now, but you talked about within the USGA, the importance of collaboration versus any one individual. Now, collaboration is what everybody's talking about now as being one of those traits that you need to have as a leader. What was it that drove you to that, that approach and, and that mindset? The more you can get a group together and work together for a common goal that's positive and share the success of that, why wouldn't you wanna be part of that? And you're gonna be much more successful with more people around. So to be able to collaborate in any way with the game of golf, I thought was really very important. I mean, we had to collaborate 
with the RNA to have agreement on changing the rules of golf. So that was a forced collaboration. But to recognize that there were a lot of entities out there that wanted to grow the game, one of the ones that that I had the opportunity to be part of at the very beginning, thanks to both the PGA of America and Augusta National, was Drive, Chip, and Putt. And my goodness, talk about a collaboration that's been a huge success. It's just figuring out an opportunity. Let's bring these three entities together. What can each group do to you know, provide a success for Drive, Chip, and Putt? And then let's introduce it to the to the world and uh, the success of that, I guess, speaks for itself. But why wouldn't we want to collaborate, I guess is my point. Well, Kula, it's, it's crazy that it's been this long. But 10 years ago, I met this guy named Jeff Colvin, who wrote a piece on Yum! Brands and our recognition culture for Fortune magazine. I've got that article framed in my office because I just loved our company getting so much recognition for being good at recognition. Well, we've become really good friends. And and several years later, it was really fun for me to flip the mic around and interview him for the podcast. Now, he's the senior editor at large for Fortune Magazine, and I'm going to interview him. And I love throwing him a few hardballs. And in this clip... Jeff talks about where great performance comes from for leaders and anyone trying to excel in their field. And believe me, this guy has written some great books on the subject. This is from episode 149 and my conversation with Jeff Colvin. Great performance comes from a particular process that the researchers call deliberate practice, and we'll get into that. But the gist of the research says further that natural talent, you know, something you're literally born with. The research says that either is way overrated or maybe it doesn't even exist. What most of the world's great performers are thinking when people say to them, oh, wow, you have an incredible natural talent. Inwardly, what we've learned is a lot of great performers resent it. They resent being told that they have a great natural talent because that makes it sound like it was easy for them to get where they got. What they all know is that it wasn't easy. They had to work harder than most of us can ever imagine to get where they got. Now, you've studied this. So what generally is the true source to top-level talent? And I know you talk about deliberate practices being one of those things. Absolutely. If you had to boil it down, that's really what it comes down to. It is deliberate practice, which is a very specifically defined thing, which I'll describe, is deliberate practice done typically for hours a day, every day for years. And what the world's greatest performers have done is go through that. And it's hard. It's not easy. But they've gone through that typically for years. So what is it? Well, one thing I learned when I did all the research for the book is that deliberate practice is not what most of us think of when we think of practice. I discovered, for example, that what I do out on the driving range at the golf course is a pathetic example of deliberate practice. It's not (laughs) even close. Fortunately, although it's very specific, it's pretty simple to describe. Here's what deliberate practice is. One. 
It is an activity that is designed especially for you at your current stage in the development of whatever it is you're doing, whether it's playing golf or playing the violin or doing surgery or flying a jet aircraft or whatever it is. It's designed especially for you at your current state of development. Two, it is designed to push you just beyond your current abilities. It doesn't try to push you way beyond your current abilities because then you're just lost. You got no idea what to do. And it doesn't allow you to operate within your current abilities because then you don't grow. It is constantly pushing you just past what you're able to do right now. It can be repeated at high volume. That turns out to be very important. And the fourth thing, you're getting continual feedback. You can't get better if you don't know how you're doing. That's what deliberate practice boils down to. And that's the activity repeated, as I said, typically for hours a day for years on end, that all the great performers, regardless of their field, typically have in common. Well, David, whether you're writing articles for Fortune magazine or leading a business, storytelling is a skill you need if you really want to be successful and invite your team into a mission that they really want to be a part of. The next clip is from your conversation with Ben Weprin. He's the CEO of AJ Capital and Graduate Hotels. And I'll tell you, Ben is a passionate guy and he's a passionate leader. And he really knows how to use story to connect with his customers but also to attract top talent to the mission of the company. Let's take a listen to this clip from episode 143. What do you look for uh, when you're hiring talent and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah, we've done a lot of people finding us more than us finding them. And I think it takes time to really figure out who you're, you know, who, who's going to jive well, just in terms of the cultural fit and the impact. I mean, we really look for people that are passionate about what they do. You know, people that are into problem solving, that are entrepreneurial, that want to take on a lot of responsibility. I mean, you want people that are mission driven and that are inspired by what you're doing. You know, it's not like, you know, you think about us going into opening in a hotel in a university anchored market. It's a small town, a small community. It's not that we're necessarily going to pay more than the Holiday Inn or Hampton Inn or Hilton Garden Inn or whatever our competitive set is, but we have a real mission, right? We want to humanize hospitality through space. And people are inspired by that. It's the same idea that, you know, you're not going to make more working at the Apple store as opposed to T-Mobile, but people join Apple because they want to be part of something bigger than them. And we really look out for, for, for those people. Yeah, I always say nobody ever goes to work every day wanting to be a part of something mediocre. And, and you built a, a great company. How does storytelling play into other aspects of your leadership? it's instrumental in every part of it when you think about it. I mean, when you're trying to manifest something and particularly thinking about when you're starting, you have to be able to tell that story. You have to be able to articulate it, you know, your unbridled passion and interest very clearly, very passionately. And people have to believe that you're going to do it, you know, because they're investing as you and you and your idea. And, the, you know, everybody can sit here and talk about this, but the real hard part is doing it. That's a long journey from talk to execution, right? We're building something that's in the future. You have to be able to believe my story or you're not going to invest in that being part of that journey. And so the story is is everything. And, and you know, think about a songwriter. I mean, the writing of the song is then comes into life. They manifest that through the chords and the lyrics and the person singing. We do the same thing, but in physical space. 
So we're telling that story. And, you know, hopefully people connect it. And some people won't. You know, a lot of people think I'm out of my mind or they think that, you know, this product, you know, this looks like a living room. And I'm like, well, that's great because what we're doing is not for everybody. All of those obstacles or opportunities and work clothes, that's okay. We want to build something that's differentiated and to be differentiated is actually very difficult. Um, one, it's hard to bring it to life. And then two, it's not for everyone. That's okay because the people that like it will really resonate with us. And those people, the lifetime value of that customer, the brand ambassadorship, them taking ownership and sharing it with people, that's the most valuable salespeople there are for us in the world. That's exactly what we're looking for. We're not for everybody, but for our people, they're going to say, these people get me, they understand me. I'm going to take that journey with them because I believe in the story. Kula, there's no debate on this. If you want to lead well, you have to put your people first. We've said it time and time again because it bears repeating time and time again because it is the fundamental of leadership. That was the key takeaway from my conversation with Jim Fish, the CEO of Waste Management. He really understands this concept and lives it. In Jim's business, he says his number one challenge is labor-related. So you can see why he puts such a priority on his people in treating them the way they deserve to be treated. Here's a clip from our conversation, episode 148. Well, you've been at the company since 2001, I believe. How has the business evolved uh, since that time? I think the change from for me from 2001 until today, aside from just kind of the, the career changes, has been that we've really started to recognize that people are the backbone of our company, that we have to cultivate people and, and make sure that we help them grow. Uh, it's different than when my dad was, was uh, in, a, in a small business. You know, I think people had fewer choices back then in my dad's generation. Today, our, our young people have lots of choices. And if I don't treat them the way they would like to be treated, the way they deserve to be treated, they'll jump ship pretty quickly. I, I hope that when I retire, that people say, Jim helped make this a great place to, to work, to make a career. That, that is what I hope people take away from my leadership is that, first of all, that Jim honestly cares about 50,000 people. And it's not just 50,000 people, it's 50,000 people plus their families. That I honestly care about every single one of those people and I, and I want what's best for them, whether it's pay or whether it's benefits or whether it's recognition or whether it's happiness, that the, the small amount of happiness that I can provide them in, in having a job that's fulfilling, that's how I hope I come across. I'm plagiarizing a little bit here from Herb Kelleher because I, I never met Herb, but I always thought he was a great CEO and maybe a little bit ahead of his time because he recognized back in the 1970s, 80s, and, and 90s, that if you take care of your people then they, and they're happy with what they do, then they in turn will take care of your customers and your customers will be happy. And then your customers, happy customers will make for happy shareholders. And it has to be in that order. Our next clip is with Mike McCoy, who is the captain of the Walker Cup. And just a few weeks ago, Mike assembled the best amateur golfers from the U.S. to compete against the top amateurs in Great Britain and Ireland, which is something they do every two years at this incredible event. And spoiler alert, 
If you didn't catch the Walker Cup, Mike and the United States team won in an epic comeback at St. Andrews, and it was electric. In your interview with Mike, you talk about how lessons in golf have very practical application to the business world in his role as area president of Gallagher Insurance. So let's listen to this clip from episode 150 and hear how Mike has been successful by leading with grit, both on the golf course and in the office. Golf is really never over until you hold the last putt. And, you know, sometimes the round doesn't start off so well. But, you know, if you keep your attitude and keep working, you know, a lot of times you'll have that little spurt on the back nine where you'll make a few birdies and kind of turn the whole day around. And that's very true in business. Uh, you know, you, you may start working on a project for a prospective client and you don't feel it's going the right way. You know, you're not coming up with the right answer. Uh, you're not certain you're going to be able to break that long-term relationship. And more often than not, if you just get to the finish line and keep working, more often than not, something happens. You may not get the whole order, but you walk away with a piece of it because, you know, your clients admire the grind that you put into it. You know, I, I understand that that you really like USGA tournament setups, and not many golfers say that, which they're known for being very, very demanding. Does that translate into your professional life as well, the enjoyment of a big challenge and facing it head on? Yes, I think it does. Uh, I've always been attracted to complex clients uh, that have very, very uh, challenging insurance and risk management needs. And just like the USGA, they demand the ability to, you know, really sustain yourself over an entire week under very trying conditions. And, you know, a lot of guys, when they show up and see the grass is a little longer and the greens are a little firmer and faster, you know, you've got half the field beat already. And I think that's kind of true in, in business. Some people, you know, that when they get in there and they see what a mess that, uh, you know, a, a client's got, they, they just sort of throw their hands up. And that's kind of where I like to dig in and solve those big problems. I have so much respect for this next guest and his leadership, Bob Grossman, the CEO of NYU Langone Health. When Bob stepped in as CEO, believe me, this guy shocked the system and really put pressure on his people by dealing with reality and holding them accountable for results. This whole episode is amazing. I believe that Bob is one of the best CEOs in the world. So go back and listen to episode 142, and you're going to find out why. But for now, here's a short clip. I was named the uh, dean and CEO in March uh, 2007, but I start in July, and I asked for all this information, and they had these books, these thick binders full of books, and they couldn't give me all the information. I said, there's something wrong with this system. I'm going to be, <laughs> it's like flying, and at that time, we were about $2 billion business, and it's like flying a 747 without any control panel. And on top of that, when I started to uh, dig into the finances, we had a structural deficit of about $150 million a year, which was backstopped by a, a royalty from the drug Remicade, which is very dangerous because if you have an event like Vioxx, the drug is out and you're going bankrupt. 
And so we were confronted with financial instability. Our bonds were about junk rated uh, and the facilities uh, were old. One of the things about leadership is it starts when they push the button and you have to get going. You can't take a while that people are expecting changes and the expectations are very high. And to sit there and just wait and wait and wait, you lose that reservoir of support that you have initially. You took some real specific actions to let people know that things were going to be different around here and, and, and drive home the belief that you could actually become world-class. Can you, can you share a few examples? Yeah, I, I just make an observation. So one of the members on our board was John Stewart, who had been the former CEO of McKenzie. And when, when he heard what I was doing, he said, Bob, it's never going to work. Uh, you can't do all this change. Organizations can't absorb it. A year later, he came back to me. He said, you were exactly right. <laughs> so, so, and that was, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But uh, we changed uh, in three dimensions. So we, again, the missions of an academic medical center are education, research, and clinical care. We became very uh, metrically driven on the clinical side and on the research side. And that's very important because previously, a lot of the investigators uh, had lived in the ether of ambiguity. So if you don't measure it, they think they're great. I love that ether of ambiguity. Uh, That's a great phrase. Thank you. When there's no transparency, everybody thinks they can do whatever the hell they want and they just can proclaim themselves being great. And then on the educational side, we said we're going to transform the curriculum to the 21st century. And on the uh, clinical side, as I said, we held people accountable, uh, both on the ambulatory side and the inpatient side. Well, David, you may not know this about me, but there are few things I enjoy more than pounding a cheeseburger and some fries, <laughs> which is part of the reason why I so enjoyed your conversation with Scott Redler. He's the co-founder of Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers, and he's the chairman of the National Restaurant Association, which supports almost a million restaurants in the U.S. Something Scott brought up multiple times in your conversation was what he called the Freddy's way, which is basically how he and his team have codified their standard of excellence. They don't want anything done in their 500 restaurants to be anything less than the best. And it's important for all of us as leaders to codify what success looks like for our teams. Let's take a listen to your conversation with Scott from episode 152, and maybe I'll slam a burger after we're done. <laughs> you know, when, when it comes down to business, business is basics, right? I'm, I'm a big person that goes into BBM, basic business model. So what's the basic business model of Freddy's? The three-legged stool that a lot of us use that terminology with food, hospitality, and sanitation facility. The Freddy's way is doing them the right way, doing what makes sense. We all know we want fries that are coming straight out of the fryer to you. Because the first thing a guest does when they grab their tray in a restaurant is eat a fry. The first thing someone does in the drive-thru, by the way, before they even pull away, is eat a French fry, right? And if they're fresh and hot, we won. And that is so critical to keep up those standards. You know, we use a, a premium beef and it's cooked to order. We butter toast our buns. We don't pre-cook buns. All the things that people have done to become more 
in their mind more efficient. I think we we take a long term approach to the quality of our food, the quality of our custard, the hospitality level that we have, and I think it makes a huge difference. You know, I've also heard you say that you, you've never made a decision to lower the quality or portion of any food item. Will you share a story of when that was easier said than done? So I'm going to use a term. I call it management by too many MBAs, and and I don't mean it directly to an MBA. I mean it by the attitude of let's make more profit. And I think it's a short-term thought process in my mind. To me, if you take care of the guest and are proud of what you do and charge what you need to charge and the guest walks away happy, you're great. And a great example of this is uh, we used to have a concept called Timberline Steakhouse and Grill. I don't know if we were around when you were in Wichita. And I had a guest come up to me and go, Scott, you know, I'm in here every Friday night. Yes, you are. Thank you. We greatly appreciate it. He goes, I always get a sirloin. I go, yes, you do. He goes, well, there's another steakhouse down the street. The sirloins are $2 cheaper. I go, well, why aren't you there? He goes, well, your steaks are a lot better. Everything we get here is a lot better. I go, what's your question? Be proud of what you do. A a guest will quickly forget the extra 50 cents or a dollar that it truly does take to give people premium quality, but they won't forget a poor meal or poor hospitality. Now, our next guest, Corey Robertson, was thrust into the spotlight when she and her family starred in the hit television series, Duck Dynasty. Believe it or not, their family had a tremendous business selling duck calls, which exploded when this television show went on the air. And it was Corey's idea to put this show into production. The key thing we talked about in our interview, though, was the importance of knowing who you are and staying grounded. Here's a clip from episode 145 with Corey Robertson. So many times you start out small, you get big, you know, and you kind of, you can lose your way as you get big. How do you keep your, what is now a big business, a big company, how do you keep it small for the rest of the employees? You know, there were pieces of it that we did lose our way because Duck Dynasty was so big and it became this like, we were on like toddler underwear, you know, it's like <laughs> Duck Dynasty Chia Pets and Duck Dynasty everything. But then we had this brand Duck Commander that is a legitimate hunting company that was here 40 years before and we hope is here 40 years after. And there was a, a moment there where it was, we're just kind of, on everything and that oversaturation word that you hear or whatever, it happened to us. And so whenever the show ended, we had to say, okay, like, who are we at the at core? Like, who are we as Duck Commander at the core? And who are we going to be 40 years from now? And, um, you know, had to kind of relay that message to the customer that like, hey, we're still here. Like, we didn't leave. The Duck Dynasty didn't change who we are and, and what we're about. Um, that was a fun part of our life. And it was just like, big, massive um, snap taught out of our life, but Duck Commander remains what it is. And so we, I think we were at risk of that. And we did for a little bit have to kind of come back to the customer and say, no, 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 no. Don't forget. Don't forget who we are at our core. How has been being in the spotlight changed you as a leader? I would hope to say that it hasn't. I think that um, for our family, you know, one of the things we talked about just so much with our kids is like, you are who you are, whether you're in the spotlight or whether 
you're behind the scenes, whether in your work or your home or whatever, and just being really true to who you are, wherever you are, um, I think is so important. So I don't think that it has, and I kind of hope that it hasn't. And one of the things our daughter Sadie said one time, someone asked, like, how do you think, you know, you kind of stay grounded? And she was like, you know, we're really the same people as home as we are in public. So that's just how it is. That's great. And um, so I hope to think that's how we've lived our life. You know, tell me about this phrase that I think your family uses, remember the Alamo. I know what remember <laughs> the Alamo means. You know, I, I've watched that movie. It's one of my favorites as a kid. What's it mean when you apply that to your family? All right. So that goes back to whenever we first started the show, Duck Dynasty. And there was some, some of the family was a little unsure because, you know, we are going into unknown territory and there's this whole like thing of like, oh, you're going to Hollywood. Um, what's going to happen? Your kids are going to end up on drugs and you're going to end up divorced. And, you know, it's this like fear of Hollywood. So we had some conversations about that and we actually had a family meeting. We sat down and we we're just like, you know, this is something we feel like is going to be great for uh, our family, right, for our company. We hope we point people to Jesus, which is what our family is all about. But, you know, if it's not good for us, then we just want it to go away. We don't want it to happen because we really had, you know, our family values were what's most important. So we sat down as a family and we were like, how are we going to like protect ourselves from that? And someone said, I think we should have like a catchphrase. That's like, if, you know, if someone's getting off, someone's getting the big head, someone's forgetting what this is really about. We can just say that. And that's all we have to say. We don't say anything else. And Uncle Si, who's the crazy one in the family says, remember the Alamo. And we're all like, look at him like, what? And he's like, that's it. Remember the Alamo. That's our saying. And so it had nothing to do with anything else, but it was the perfect saying for us. And, um, our Willie's oldest brother, Alan, bought us all refrigerator magnets. I said, I remember the Alamo for us to just put on our refrigerator. And it was just a reminder to us to stay true to who we are and not let the fame or fortune or whatever might come change us. <laughs> That's great. All right, David, this is our last clip for today. And it's from Patrick Lencioni, a best-selling author, best known for his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Patrick founded a business a couple decades ago called The Table Group, where they work to create more healthy work cultures. And he has a ton of wisdom around what it looks like to lead from a healthy place. Your interview with him is truly one of my favorites that we've done. And in this clip, Patrick talks about how leaders can embrace the power of vulnerability and the impact that vulnerable, humble leaders can have on their team. This clip is from episode 147. Let's have a listen. When you think about this concept, the reality of being vulnerable, how does it impact the rest of the team when you as a leader really open up and share? I think it's humility, you know, and people say, well, what is humility? And it's genuine humility. If the greatest problem in life is pride, that's the root of all sin. It's like people's pride gets in the way. The antidote to pride is humility. That's the opposite. And, and I never really understood this, and somebody explained this to me years ago. Humility is the most attractive quality in the world. To meet a genuinely humble person is so, it changes everything. And so when they see you being human, and when they see you said, I made a mistake, they're like, I can relate to you, I will follow you, and I believe that you are worth listening to because you're not trying to promote yourself. And yet, so many young people and older people 
go into the world thinking to be a leader means I have to be perfect, I have to be on, I have to avoid making mistakes. And it is the very thing that makes people not want to follow them because we don't trust people that aren't humble. But humility is not denying that you have genius and skills and success because when you do that, people are like, oh, are you not comfortable with that? We all have to know when God gives us a gift and people recognize it, you have to say, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty good at that, aren't I? You don't celebrate it all the time. You don't make it make you feel like you're better than everybody else. But when you're good at something or do something well, it is just as much an, an element of humility to say, yes, that's true. And I'm glad that I could do that. That's true. You know, because, you know, you really can't fake this kind of stuff. You can't fake humility. You can't say, oh, you know, I never came up with an idea in my life because nobody's going to buy into that, you know? And in fact, when I said to you, I'll, I'll let other people talk about the cool ranch Doritos. I was BSing you. I really right. was. I love telling that story. And, and you know what? I, right now I'm being vulnerable. I mean, because you know, that was me not being David Novak. Right. And you know, we love to celebrate people's successes and talents. And we also love it when they acknowledge their shortcomings. And if Michael Jordan came off the court and they said, Michael, you played a great game. And he goes, no, not really. I did. It's like, Michael, you scored 40 points. You had this many rebounds. You did all this. If he, he can say, yeah, and it was really fun. And I'm glad I can do that. Now I'll talk about my teammates and what they did too. But when a person is unwilling to acknowledge the true gifts they have, it actually hurts their ability to be credible. You know, it's just humility is about acknowledging truth. You got to be the real deal. There's no question about that. You know, I remember coming up when people would say, you know, don't let them see you sweat. You know, is there any merit to that kind of thinking today? No, I think the best leaders are the ones, especially with your team. I mean, it's one thing what you do at a podium in, in a press conference. That's a little different. But the best leaders are the ones that go, check this out. And they point at their armpits. Look how sweaty I am. Because everybody else is like, yeah, we saw that too. The fact that you're willing to point it out means we're okay. But when somebody's standing there like the emperor with no clothes saying, how do I look? And everybody's like, uh, you look fine, boss. They lose credibility. They People just will not follow them and trust them. So I think if you're sweating, be the first one. If you rip a fart in a meeting, go, whoa, <laughs> I just I just did that. And I mean, I don't, I don't encourage people to do that, but you know, we're human. And when we acknowledge our humanity, people will follow us. Well, that wraps up today's best of episode. I hope you loved it. And before I end this podcast, there's one thing that I want everyone listening to do, and it'll only take about 60 seconds. And that ask is to leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. As you know, the goal of this podcast is to make the world a better place by developing better leaders. And the ratings and reviews go a really long way to get this podcast into the hands of as many people as possible so that more and more folks around the world can learn from the world's best leaders. And get ready for quarter four of the How Leaders Lead podcast. We've got some amazing guests lined up who will help you become an even better leader. I couldn't agree with you more, Kula, and thank you in advance for doing your reviews. Believe me, I read every single one of them and it inspires us to keep on keeping on. And like you said, Kula, we've got some great episodes to come. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast so our episodes automatically download to your device as soon as they're released. Nothing's more simple than that. And thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead. 
where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.